Wazu, 2022. Today is a day of uh, digestion, integration. You have received so many uh, teachings, so much advice, so many recommendations, so many suggestions, both in the Zendo and Sanzen at meals, for work, that at least after this talk, we're going to give people a chance to digest, to apply what you have heard without additional interference. I will see the um, people who were left in line last night, this afternoon, and then Jomon will meet with the people who are online this afternoon. In thinking about this particular talk and what might be helpful given all of the plethora of of advice and information and suggestions that you've already received, I started, was reading through uh, Wang Po, the great Wang Po, and he is so profound and is so rich and so deep that I thought that maybe what would be better than adding <clears throat> more trivia to just let Wang Po speak for us all. In the um, the record of Wang Po, the, the, it actually is interesting because one of his main disciples, one of his Dharma heirs, Pei Su, was a like the chancellor or vizier or um, senior person in the Chinese government. And so because he was uh, Wang Po's student, and he spent a lot of time with him, and he wrote down much of what he heard, you'll see. I think that that record may have been more legitimately passed on than many of the other records, which are uh, often apocryphal. Apocryphal, not hypocryphal. So here's what Pei uh, Su says in the beginning, the introduction to the to Wang Po's teaching. The great Zen master Wang Po, who died in 850 CE, was the third in the direct line of descent from Wei Nang, the sixth ancestor. Wei Nang, the sixth ancestor, is the um, protagonist of the Platform Sutra, the, the central figure in place of the Buddha. And a pupil, and a and also a fellow disciple of Hui Hai. There's a wonderful book in the library called Swampland Flowers, the letters of uh, Hui Hai. And Wang Po is also the teacher of Rinzai, Lin Ji. So he was a buried in the Tang dynasty and between very eminent teachers at that time. He says, holding in esteem only the direct method of the highest vehicle, which cannot be communicated in words. He taught nothing but the doctrine of the one mind, holding that there is nothing else to teach, in that both the mind and substance are spacious, unfixed, empty, 
and the chain of causation is motionless. The chain of causation is motionless. You can see that causation and the results of causation both happen simultaneously. So pay pay siu badly pronounced. Met Wang Po when Pei Siu was visiting a monastery and he saw a portrait on one of the walls. If you go to the Chinese monasteries, often there are um, kind of an adobe stucco covering of the walls. And on those stucco, there have been, you know, things written or portraits or kind of like a bulletin board of the monastery. Um, And he saw a portrait of a famous teacher there. And a monk was there nearby, and he said, I see the image. Where is the real person? The monk didn't really know how to respond. But it just happened that Wang Po was coming by and said, what's, what's going on? And he said, well, ask me the same question. So Pei Xu said, I see the image. Where is the real person? And Wang Po instantly said, Pei Xu, where are you right now? Where are you right now? And somehow that touched him very deeply, that recognition. And because of his insight, because of being touched so deeply right there, because of having a little opening right there, he became Wang Po's devoted student. He, he continues, in 843, when I was in, in charge of the district of Chonglin, I welcomed Wang Po on his coming to that city from the mountain where he resided. We stayed together in Lungxing Monastery, where day and night I questioned him about the way. Moreover, in 849, six years later, while governing the district of Wang Ling, I again had occasion to welcome him ceremoniously to the place where I was stationed. And this time we stayed quietly at Kwai Yong Monastery, where I studied under him day and night. After leaving him, I recorded what I had learned. And though able to set down only about a fifth of it, I esteem it as a direct transmission of the doctrine. At first I was diffident about publishing what I had written. But now, fearing that these vital and penetrating teachings will be lost to future generations, I have done so. So you can imagine someone being chosen disciple and spending hours and hours and hours with her and writing down everything that she said. There's a number of cases like this in the Chinese literature. He continues, Moreover, I gave the manuscript to the monks Tai Chu, and Fa Qian, requesting them to return to the monastery on the old mountain and ask the elder monks there how far it agrees with what they themselves used to hear frequently in the past. So Wang Po died in approximately 850, and he was studying with him just before his death. And then he wrote, wrote all this down, had it checked with the monastery monks who were still alive, when Wang Po was teaching. And then here is the teaching of Wang Po. 
Mind is like the sun journeying through the sky and emitting glorious light uncontaminated by the finest particle of dust. And by mind, it does not mean thoughts. The thinking mind is not what the mind refers to in these teachings. Thoughts are a, just like eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and thought, thinking, is a sense, is an activity of the sense. That's all we are, it's just activity of the senses. But mind refers to that which is fundamental, that which from which thought originates. To those who have realized the nature of reality, there is nothing old or new, and conceptions of shallowness and depth are meaningless. There is nothing old or new, and conceptions of shallowness and depth are meaningless. Now, a little aside, if we look at what our life is composed of, really look at what the essential bits are, and we all start off by, you know, thinking of the fingers and toes and eyes and nose and and dirt and air and the, the five or six elements. And then we look at them more closely. What is the, what is the five? What are the five elements composed of? And if we look closely, we see that for anything to exist, it has to be separated, differentiated, discriminated from something else. If there is knowing, it has to be com- contrasted with, set in pair with not knowing. They come together. If we don't know, then there's also knowing. If there's up, there's down. If there's in, there's out. You know, all these relative terms. And if we look at what makes those relative terms, <clears throat> it's our, it is the discerning, discriminating mind. The mind that says, oh, this is a finger and this is a toe. The mind that says, this is here and that is there. The mind that says, this is the foreground, this is the background. So if we look carefully at anything, its existence is because we have discerned it. We have separated it out. We have identified it. We have used the thinking mind to make two. So when he's talking about the nature of reality, he's talking about before the thinking mind sets things up into old and new, borrowed or blue, shallow or deep. Same thing as as we are doing zazen, and as we are paying attention to the essence of mind, it's not concerned with what shape we have, or what gender we have, or what age we have, or what whether we've been feel like we've been successful or unsuccessful in life, or whether we've had trauma or no trauma. It's not about any of those things. It's about that which is before the stories of all that have proliferated have come to be. So when we are working at this level of reality, it's not about problem solving. There is a place for problem solving. You know, we, we have to solve problems in order to, you know, cook a meal. We have to solve problems in order to, you know, get our cars to run. 
But this place of reality includes all of that, but actually is kind of, in a way, larger, more inclusive before. Those who speak of it do not attempt to explain it, establish no sex and open no doors or windows. That which is before you is it. Begin to reason about it and you will at once fall into error. Again, the same thing I was mentioning earlier is reasoning is when we start discerning and saying this from that, this from that, this from that, there is a place for that, of course. We have to know, you know, that we pick up our fork, we have to know where it's aimed at. You know, <clears throat> so it's important to be able to discriminate. Uh, on the other hand, when we're talking about this level of, of experience, it's about the totality of our own experience right here, right now, which has no comparison. It is unique. It is the only one like it in our universe. And so that which is you, that which is you, Begin to reason about it, and you will at once fall into error. Only when you have understood that this, this, only when you have understood this, will you perceive your oneness with original Buddha nature, which of course means you and original Buddha nature are not two things. You know, he makes up this, this, you'll receive, you'll, you'll perceive your oneness with original Buddha nature, but that's a, a false duality. He's just kind of setting that up to remind all of us who are so obsessed with ourselves that that, that right there is something that is uh, fun, fundamental and genuine. Therefore, his, Wang Po's, words were simple, his reasoning direct, his way of life exalted, and his habit unlike, habits unlike the habits of other people. And it said that uh, it says that disciples hastened to him from all quarters, looking up to him as to a lofty mountain, and through their contact with him awoke to reality. Of the crowds which flocked to see him, there were always more than one thousand with him at a time. Can you imagine living with a thousand people, and within four large within a large compound? or trying to manage those people, because you know the thousand people, you have every state of mind under the sun. You have good and bad and crazy and sane, and you have people who are really have ardent ardent, who are ardent practitioners, and you have people who are just there for the, for the rice, and you have people who are really looking for power, and people who don't know what else to do, and every kind of person. So if you're living with a thousand people, and you're... <clears throat> a senior person in that community, you have to be familiar with, you have to be able to understand all of those different states of mind. And the way we understand them is not by pulling out our psychology books, but it's to understand ourselves. Because in us we have a, you know, an infinite number of voices. And they're not real voices, they're not real things, or we can't, we can't dissect them, we can't take a scalpel and cut out the inner critic or cut out the, or add the inner joker. Um, but we, we have to be familiar with them. And what they all are before, <clears throat> before the mind has made up a story about them is their sensations, their energies, their, their feeling. And so one of the elements 
of practice is to become, to expand our awareness to be willing to feel everything that is brought to us. And it's easy to feel things that are good and shiny and bright, but we also have to feel that which is not so shiny and bright and that's not so easy. That it all has the same flavor. Each according to our particular karma, we get, we get a, a package of this or that based on our karma. But our task is to, to know it all, to accept it all. And as I mentioned to many people, acceptance is the foundation of love. No acceptance, no love. So to, to truly accept all the voices, all the parts of ourselves, and to know how to manage them, in a way, is what they're talking about. You have a thousand people and you have to accept who is there and then how do you work with them? To accept a circumstance that has been brought to our lives and to say, okay, this is what's, he- this is what's here, this is who's here. How do I meet it most skillfully? And the easy way, of course, we think of, well, I'll just get rid of it and then, then I've met it. But everything's brought to us and there for a purpose. Here's the piece that we were reading <clears throat> and we'll continue reading uh, for the session. And again, each time you hear this, I hope that it resonates in some way with you. Our original Buddha nature is, in highest truth, devoid of any atom of objectivity. Our original Buddha nature, our original life, our original body, our original mind, our original nature, the truth, is devoid of any atom the smallest flicker of objectivity, of otherness. And of course, that means eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. Everything that is experienced is devoid of otherness. It is fluid, omnipresent, silent, pure, glorious, and mysterious, peaceful. And that is all. Now, of course, as soon as we say it is, we begin thinking, oh, there is something that has these qualities. But this is not about something having something else. This is about the eyes opening, opening and being able to see. The natural function of an eye. It sees whatever it sees. It is perhaps totally omnipotent, omniscient, totally omniscient with the visual field. We see what we see. We see everything that we can see. Not in the future, not in the past, not, not as an as a, uh, abstract idea, but we see what we see. We can't see anything other than what we can see. And the same thing is true with the breath. We breathe the breath we breathe. We can't breathe another breath. Someone else's stomach doesn't gurgle. We have to to accept that this right here, this, this body, this breath, this practice, this mind, this moment is exactly fluid, exactly omnipresent, exactly silent, except for sometimes the abdomen is a little exciting, pure peaceful. And that's all.
enter deeply into it. And the it, of course, is our life. Enter deeply into that which is aware. Enter deeply. How can you not be enter deeply into it? How can it be something other than you? And this is about entering deeply is simply recognizing that we have already, that it already permeates us. So entering deeply is a fallacious me and there's something to enter. But waking up to the fact that we have already been penetrated might be a little different way of saying it. Your total life is it. Your total life in all of its fullness, utterly complete. Now, that's so, we hear that kind of thing. It's so hard. You're sitting in session, you're breathing. What you're breathing is utterly complete. What you're breathing is the only breath you can breathe. You cannot breathe another breath. What you're seeing is the only thing you can see. In that moment, you cannot see something else. And we're sitting here imagining that there's a a bigger, better, wiser, whatever of us. But what the experience of right now is only the experience of right now. There is no other experience in that moment. So we are omnipotent as far as, we're all-knowing, as far as what we see in that instant, what we feel in that instant. And then we look and see, what is an instant, anyhow? It's a whole other koan in itself. Your life, your total life, is it, in all of its fullness, utterly complete. So, From that vantage point, every single person here is already sitting here, whole and complete. Well, what are we doing here then? Well, you can ask yourself that. Even though you go through all the stages of a bodhisattva progress toward Buddhahood, one by one, when at last, in a single flash, you only attain to full realization, you will only be realizing the Buddha nature which has been with you all the time. And yet, all of those stages, all of that growth and development has an effect on our relative life. There is no shortcut to spiritual maturity. One can't see what is really fundamental or see the interconnection of things and then say, whoop, that's it. Because we still have a life to live, and that life has to be lived fully and wholly and completely and learning whatever skill we need to learn, learning how to to best be one with the inclusive nature of mind. So on one hand, there is instant awakening, recognition, that this moment is just this moment, this moment is inclusive, this moment has its... its, uh, its brightness, its its knowing, and simultaneously there is the endless path of maturation, the endless path of of learning. There's a koan, um, one kind of thing, maybe both, where ex-master, I can't remember his name, says, you know, I don't ask you about the 14th of the month, or the 15th, or I don't ask you about after the 15th of the month, what can you say? 
Nobody answers. He says, every day is a good day. And that means every day, just as it is, every day, as we are living this life, as we are solving our problems, as we are meeting our obstacles, on one hand, it's just fine. Every season is just fine. Simultaneously, it means everything we're learning, every day is a day of learning, every day is a day of, <clears throat> of, of insight. That too means every day is a good day. So simultaneously, we are whole, complete, and simultaneously, we are broken ducks, you know? Simultaneously. And the discriminating mind is the one that says, oh, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. But before that mind starts, just our particular bundle of karma. That is why the Tathagata said, I truly attained nothing from complete, unexcelled enlightenment. Had there been anything attained, Dipankara Buddha, who was his kind of former Buddha, the Buddha of a previous life, whom Shakyamuni Buddha studied with, apocryphally, would not have made the prophet see concerning me. In the, in the, the Pali Canon, one of the, the, the gifts of a Buddha is to be able to make a prophecy about people's awakening, make a prophecy about uh, the, the unfolding of someone's karma. And so Dipankara Buddha did that for Shakyamuni Buddha before he was Shakyamuni Buddha. He said, this dharma is absolutely without distinctions, neither high nor low. We call it bodhi. It is the pure foundation of awareness, which is the source of everything, and which, whether appearing as sentient beings or appearing as Buddhas, appearing as mountains and rivers of the world, appearing as forms, as that which is formless, or that which is penetrates the whole universe, is absolutely, says, without distinctions, but you can't have all those things. On the same time, the inclusive nature of mind has to include discrimination. So there is there is a, a knowing of the dreamlike nature, the knowing of the inclusive nature of mind, the knowing of the non-separation, the knowing of the, of the oneness of things. And part of that knowing, part of knowing the dreamlike nature of mind, part of that knowing is being able to be skillful, to live ethically, to be able to, to know what is, is helpful and what's not helpful for other people. So it's very important that we not Imagine that if we just become kind of a numb, mindless lump, that somehow that touches liberation. There has got to be the insight in the, in the experience and the functioning. And that functioning is, of course, our life. And that insight, of course, is right here, our life as it is, and how it unfolds is part of the karmic flow. Continues, this pure foundation of awareness, the source of everything, shines forever and on with all the brilliance of its own perfection. But the people of the world do not awake to it. Regarding only that which sees, hears, 
feels, and thinks as fundamental truth. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and thinking, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of the source substance. If they would only see beyond all conceptual thought in a flash, that source substance would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. Let's just stop right there.